One of the lines of the song, How Great Our Father's Love for Us, has always uh, struck me as very meaningful. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. And that's why we're here, right? We're here together because God has called us here, he's healed us, he's forgiven us, and he's brought us to himself. So as we go into our study today, uh, we're actually going into the sixth of an eight-week series in the book of Genesis centered around the life of Joseph. I have uh, been very excited about that uh, and found it very challenging and moving as, as I reflect on what God was doing in Joseph's life and his family's life and as uh, I evaluate my own life uh, where God has been taking us. Uh, the overall title of the series is God Meant It for Good. And today we're going to look at a message I entitled, One Final Test. We're going to be looking at Genesis 44 and 45 today, uh, this one final test. Well, where have we been so far? Well, the Lord has been with Joseph to mold him, to transform his life from a 17-year-old boy into, sold into slavery by his hate-filled brothers into a 39-year-old man who is second in command in the most powerful nation in the world, now managing the food supply during a severe worldwide famine. We've seen that the Lord has also been with Jacob and his sons, transforming their lives as well. In Genesis 42, we saw that jo Joseph begins to test his brothers to see how they will respond to their youngest brother, Benjamin. And then last week, Phil taught us from Genesis 43, where we see that God put Jacob and his sons in a difficult situation to confront them with the choice to either trust God with the uncertainties of their lives or to trust themselves to manage those uncertainties. God also put Joseph in a difficult situation of having to deal with his brothers after all these years. And we see that Jacob reluctantly allows the brothers to bring Benjamin to Egypt. At the end of chapter 43, we see that Joseph is showing extreme and obvious favoritism towards Benjamin, singling him out over and above his brothers during lunch at Joseph's house. And this is very significant because it was Jacob's favoritism towards Joseph that fueled the brothers' hatred of Joseph and his ultimate sale into slavery. And Joseph intentionally shows favoritism to Benjamin to see how the brothers will respond. So today, as I say, we're going to see how Joseph sets up one final test for his brothers, testing to see if they are still the same men who sold him into slavery. Paul says in Romans 15, 4, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So before we look at these scriptures that were written in former days, uh, let's pray. Our Father, open our hearts to re receive instruction from your word to us today that through the encouragement of these scriptures we might have hope in the midst of the challenges and disappointments of life. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So I invite you to open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Genesis chapter 44. We're going to be looking at both 
Genesis 44 and 45 today. There's a lot going on here, all of which is very important. And we're coming to a major climax of this story, and I want us to see it all together. So I don't want you to take my word for what's in here. I'd like you to be able to look at it for yourself. So one final test. We start in Genesis 44, where the stage is set. And we pick up the story after lunch with Joseph is over. Remember, they had this lunch with Joseph. It is now over. And we pick up the story here. I'm going to read verses 1 to 17 of chapter 44 as we pick up the story. So please follow along. Then he, Joseph, commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his stewards, up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. So the brothers are sent off with three things. A generous amount of food that they came for originally, which was the only reason they were there in the first place. Uh, the writer says it's, he was, they were given as much as they can carry as much as they can carry. Uh, secondly, their money is returned to them just like the last time they came. And this time, Joseph's silver cup is intentionally planted in Benjamin's sack. Well, the brothers are then chased down. Joseph sends his steward after them to accuse them of stealing this cup. They vigorously deny the accusation, and they agree that if the cup is found, the guilty one will be executed and the rest will become slaves in Egypt. Well, the steward searches the brothers, beginning with the oldest and proceeding to the youngest of these 11 brothers. Now, they have already experienced unexplainable suffering and events at the hands of this ruler of Egypt. Can you imagine the tension building 
as this search goes on. This is 11 brothers that are being searched. So as brother after brother is searched, are, re are they relieved after each one that is proven innocent? Or is there a growing sense of dread that something very bad is just about to happen? And to everyone's horror, the cup is found in Benjamin's sack. And they return to the city in despair. There, Joseph confronts his brothers. And we see there in verse 14, they fell before him to the ground. They bow before him. This is the fourth time this is mentioned of them bowing before Joseph uh, since the story started. This is an intentional reference to the fulfillment of Joseph's original dreams. Remember, his original dreams said his brothers would be bowing before him. Well, Joseph confronts them about this undeniable theft. The brothers accept corporate responsibility for this. And if you look in verse 16, Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. This is a humble and sorrowful confession that God has exposed their guilt. There are no excuses, no explanations, and they agree that they will all stay as Joseph's servants. But verse 17, Joseph declines their offer to have all of them stay as servants. Look what he says. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. This is the crisis point of this story. Benjamin, Jacob's favorite son, has been found guilty. Benjamin is the only one who needs to stay, and the brothers are free to go to leave Benjamin behind and save their own skins. How will the brothers respond to this crisis? Will they betray Benjamin, as they did Joseph 22 years earlier, or have they really changed, and will they choose another course of action? Before we go on to what happens next, there are two things to look at. First, let's pause here to reflect on the significance of this for Joseph. Well, what did Joseph know of these men? The last he had seen them before they first came to Egypt was 20 or so years earlier when they hatefully sold him into slavery into Egypt. I imagine he's remembering the personal hurt, the betrayal, the physical pain, the years of suffering away from home and the father that he loves so dearly. Yes, God had brought him to a place of success. He had built a new life in a strange land, but that new life came with much pain along the way. He was still in that strange land, and his old life and his family was as good as dead to him. Through his years in Egypt, he had no reason to expect these men to ever be standing before him, much less seeking his help in this famine. But here they were, and he was testing them to see what was really in their hearts, to see if they had really changed. Now that the test has been set, we should be, as Joseph likely was, on the edge of our seats, holding our breaths to see how they will respond. Secondly, please notice a subtle but very significant detail that the author has included in verses 14 and 16, and you can check me on this sometime later. Both of them, if you look at verse 14, when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there, and in verse 16, and Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? 
Both of these verses specifically mention Judah. All previous mentions of the brothers traveling or speaking or doing anything referred to them as a group. They came, they brought, they said. This is the first time that one of them is singled out as the speaker, and that speaker is Judah. To further grasp the significance of that, I invite you to keep your finger here in chapter 44, but turn back to Genesis 37, 37, and we're going to look at verse 26 and 27. Remember, Joseph came looking for his brothers in the wilderness. They saw him coming, decided they were going to kill him because of their hatred for him. But in verse 26, it says this, Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he's our brother, our own flesh. So it was Judah's idea to sell Joseph into slavery. It was his cold-hearted idea to sell Joseph into slavery. And you can almost hear the sarcasm and the bitterness in his voice as he comes up with this plan. And as we return back to Genesis 44, we see that it is Judah who personally makes the appeal to Joseph. If you look in verse 18, then Judah went up to him, up to Joseph, and said. I'm going to read the rest of this chapter 44, verses 18 to 34, as if I am Judah speaking to Joseph, the Lord of the land. Please listen to the tone and content of his speech and see how it compares to what he said and how he said it in selling Joseph into slavery 22 years earlier. So Joseph is standing here. The brothers are behind me, and I am Judah now speaking to Joseph. Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eye on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then, as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant our father with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. 
Now therefore, please, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Did you hear that? Did you hear the tremendous change of heart and attitude in Judah? God has changed Judah from this hate-filled, jealous hypocrite he was into a man who showed genuine humility and tenderness, a genuine heartfelt sorrow over the situation they were in, a genuine and tender concern for his father Jacob, who years before Judah was willing to deceive into thinking that Joseph was dead, and a genuine offer to be a substitute for Benjamin. In two weeks, as God is willing, we will go back to Genesis 38. Remember, we skipped that one on our trip through. We're going to go back to Genesis 38 to look specifically at how God worked in Judah's life to transform into the man we are reading about today. But for today, we see the evidence that God did work in an amazing way. What an amazing transformation. Well, we find out as we go into chapter 45 that Joseph makes himself known. He first makes himself known to his brothers, and now I'm going to read those verses, verses uh, 1 to 15 in chapter 45. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me the Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children, and your children's children, and your flocks, and your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. There is such a profound 
change in Judah as illustrated by this test that Joseph had set up and by Judah's response. Such a profound change in Judah and by extension all his brothers that Joseph now loses it. He can no longer contain himself and he breaks down crying. I'm Joseph. I am Joseph. I'm Joseph. It's me, Joseph. They just can't believe it. They are initially dismayed, it says in verse 3. They are alarmed. They're trembling. They're disturbed. They're afraid. What is this? They weren't expecting to come face to face with him ever any more than he had been expecting to come face to face with them. And then in verse 4, he invites them. He says, come near to me, please. And they come near. And then by the time we get to verse 15, he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. They were kissing. They were hugging. They were crying. They were talking together. What an amazing story. What an amazing turnaround of the healing that God brought into this relationship between Joseph and his brothers. And look at Joseph's repeated message to them. In verse 4, you sold me into Egypt. Verse 5, you sold me, but God sent me. Verse 7, God sent me. Verse 8, it's not you who sent me, but God. He tells them in verse 5, don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. There is no sense of anger or pain or disappointment as he repeats what they did and offers words of comfort. Rather, he expresses amazement at what God has done with all the harm they had inflicted on him. God used his brother's evil plan to end his life in order that Joseph would be in position in Egypt to save their lives. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. God used his brother's evil plan to end his life in order that Joseph would be in position in Egypt to save their lives. The narrative does not tell us when Joseph came to this realization, but by the time he reveals himself to his brothers, he had come to clearly see the larger picture of what God was doing and why God had him in Egypt. And he instructs them to bring their families to live in Egypt because he knows something they don't know. There are still five years of famine to come. Well, Joseph also makes himself known to his father. I just love what he says in verse 13. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. I'm going to read the rest of chapter 45, which is the story of connecting now with his father. When the report was heard, starting at verse 16, when the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. 
To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he's ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Joseph sends them back home with wagons to bring all their families and to bring Jacob back to Egypt with enough supplies to make the journey. And I love his simple message as they depart. Sounds like a parent would say as kids leaving for college, don't forget to brush your teeth. Don't forget to lock the door. What does he say? Don't quarrel on the way. I think he was imagining the conversations that could erupt as they reviewed all that had happened to him in the last 22 years. Judah, I told you not to do anything to harm him. I told you, I told you. It wasn't my idea, Reuben. Asher thought of it first. No, I didn't. You all know that Naphtali had been pushing for it as soon as he saw that bright robe heading for us in the wilderness. And whose idea was it to trick Dad like that anyway? Wasn't it Simeon who came up with that one? What a mess that made. And we should have listened to Gad when he told us to check all of our bags before we left. We would have found that silver cup ourselves. But we let Zebulun talk us out of it. Hey, don't blame me for that. Dan was in on it too. I can't imagine the conversations that they would have had on the way back home. But they get home and they tell Jacob all that had happened. And his first response we see in verse 26 is his heart became numb. He couldn't believe the news. It just can't be after all of these years. But he is finally convinced, and in verse 27, his heart, his spirit was revived. His spirit was revived. That means it was restored to life. His spirit was restored to life. He was dead inside and was restored to life. Where once Joseph was dead, now Joseph is very much alive. And where once Jacob was dead, he himself is now very much alive. And the chapter closes with these touching words from the aged and grieving father. It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go see him before I die. In just a few moments, this fearful, fretful, grieving father went from despair to hope, from darkness to light, from death to life, more than he could have possibly imagined. How quickly things changed. After many long years of suffering, pain, and confusion, after many long years of God working at many different lives, all at the same time, at the right time, it all came together in this amazing climax. In a moment, everything changed for everyone. God infused life into this whole family where once there had been death. 
As we turn to look at some application for us, I'd like to spend some time with this truth that God restores to life that which was dead. Let's review first what God did for Joseph's family. As we just said, Jacob lived for years despairing of his own life because of his deep grief over Joseph's presumed death. And now God revives, brings back to life Jacob's heart as Joseph is figuratively brought back from the dead. Joseph's brothers, these men with hatred and death filling their hearts had been spiritually dead inside and physically in danger of dying of starvation. God now brings not only physical life by the hand of the brother they tried to get rid of, but God also provides spiritual life through the forgiveness and reconciliation that he brought. Here again, God brings life out of death. And what about Joseph? As Joseph was sold into slavery, as he slowly walked to Egypt after that event, I'm sure he could see his life dying before him. His dreams, his special relationship with his father, his homeland, his family. But now God had not only given him a new life here in Egypt, his relationship with his brothers was made new, and his relationship with his father would also soon be brought back to life. Joseph's story points us ahead to a greater savior, Jesus. Jesus' followers had great hope that Jesus was God's long-promised savior who had finally come to rescue them from their troubles. But when Jesus died on the cross, their hopes and dreams died with him. But three days later, he rose from the dead to give them and us hope and new life. Jesus' resurrection changes everything about the pain and trials of their lives. Well, what about us today? The story of Joseph and his family is not here just so we can celebrate with them the great things that God did for them, though we should certainly do that. But remember Romans 15, 4? Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. In the story of Joseph and his family, God has pulled back the curtain so we can see how God was at work behind the scenes in ways that they could not see at the time. Thus, this story gives us hope that God is at work in the same way in our own lives and the lives of those around us, working behind the scenes in ways we cannot see to bring new life where there is no life. If this same wise and powerful and loving God can bring such new life to Joseph and his family, what can he do? What is he doing with you and your family to bring new life? To look at this from a New Testament perspective, I would like us to look together to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and I invite you to turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans... 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, chapter 1. We're going to start, we're going to read verses 8 to 10. We're jumping into the middle of Paul's discussion here, but there's something he wants to tell these Corinthian believers. He says in verse 8, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. 
But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Paul shares that what was going on when he and his companions were in Asia, he says, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Ever been there? Ever been there? Are you there now? So utterly burdened beyond your strength that you despaired of life itself. He says, we were out of strength to continue. Our problems were so big that we thought we were going to die. As a matter of fact, we wished we would die because that would probably be a lot easier than what we're going through now. And then in verse 9, he tells the purpose of God putting them in that painful situation. He says, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. God put them in such a painful place that their only hope was to trust in him. And not just trust in him, but trust that he could even raise the dead if necessary. He could raise their physical bodies from the dead if their trials came to the point of, from sickness or injury or being executed for their faith, that God could raise them from the dead. And he could also raise from the dead things in their lives that had died, relationships, opportunities, dreams, plans. God brought them to the point of being at the end of themselves, having the sentence of death in themselves so that they could trust in a God who could even raise the dead if necessary. And in verse 10, Paul reveals the outcome of God's work in their lives. He says, he delivered us and he will deliver us. And then he says, on him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Paul's confidence is not in his own strength or his own abilities, but in God who will deliver us even if he has to raise them from the dead. Now, resurrection from the dead can only occur when something has died, right? So what is dying or has already died in your life? Your own strength? your ability to understand what's happening to you, the expectation of a body free of pain and sickness, a valued relationship, your dreams, your desires, your plans, your marriage, meaningful opportunities, that great job, the list could go on and on. And these are not bad things to hope for, not bad things to long for, but God is constantly leading us to die to ourselves so that he can raise us to a life far beyond what we could have produced on our own or could have possibly imagined. You know, I don't know if you've ever heard it said, we probably have, it's not over till it's over. Heard that, right? It's not over till it's over. It's, it's our way of saying, well, as long as there's still life, there's hope. But you know what? Jesus' resurrection from the dead changes everything. Because of Jesus' resurrection, it's not over even when it's over. Think about that. Because of Jesus' resurrection, it's not over even when it's over. God can bring anything or anyone back from the dead if necessary. You cannot have a problem that is too big for God to bring it back to life in his time 
and his way. In fact, even if we die physically, still under the weight of our unresolved difficulties, he is able to and will raise us from the dead to a life that is beyond our wildest imaginations. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.9, what has not entered the heart of man or that we can imagine, all that God has prepared. We have very vivid imaginations. And God says he has prepared stuff for us that is beyond our imagination. Can you even imagine something beyond our imagination? It does not matter if the problems we face are a result of our own sinful choices or if we are the victims of other people's choices. The answer is the same, that true hope is found in God and God alone and in the rec resurrection of Jesus Christ for us because there God can bring new life to the things in our lives that have died. So God is always looking to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we would live out the better fuller resurrection life that he has given us in Jesus. One of our problems, I don't know if you, I know one of my problems, is that I interpret God's work in my life based on what's right in front of me, in the moment. But if you think of Jacob, Joseph, Joseph's brothers, they had no clue for those 22 years what God was doing behind the scenes to bring new life to them. So regardless of what we see or don't see, God is always at work in us, in our sons and daughters, in our parents, in our marriages, in our church, in our country, in our workplaces, all at the same time to bring life in his time and his way. Something Tim Keller said, I believe, is helpful here. He said, never, ever, ever, ever think that God's not working, no matter how much it seems like he's absent. And at the same time, never, 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 never think you're going to be able to figure it out for a long time what he's up to. You may or may not have heard of the idea that we live in the, what's called the already, not yet. We are already saved by Jesus but not yet completely saved. Jesus is already ruling as king, but not yet fully reigning as king. Well, we have already experienced God's new life now in this life, forgiveness of sins, relief from shame, restored relationships, renewed meaning and purpose for life, restored hope for the future, revived opportunities and circumstances. But we have not yet experience the fullness of what all that means. At just the right time, in ways we do not expect, with a speed we cannot imagine, God will bring it all to a joyful conclusion when Jesus comes back to bring in the new heavens and the new earth. Until then, we will fully ex experience all that God was, well, and then we will fully experience all that God was working behind the scenes to bring fullness of life out of what was dead and dying. And we will then fully experience all that the resurrection of Jesus has accomplished for us. Until then, I would like to close with these words from Alistair Begg that help us focus on God when life is confusing, chaotic, falling apart, and even dying. He says, one day, you will see what God was doing in directing matters differently than you would have chosen. Until then, you can persevere 
because he has promised to work for the good of his people. One day you will see what God was doing in directing matters differently than you would have chosen. Until that day, you can persevere because he has promised to work for the good of his people. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this amazing reminder that your goal is to bring abundant life to all of your children and that you are constantly at work behind the scenes to enable us to die, for our, die to ourselves, that we may live for you and all the fullness you have for us. We thank you for the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ who purchased all that we need for life and godliness. We get great tastes of that now, but we so look forward to being home with you in the new heavens and the new earth where everything will be made perfectly right for all eternity. In the meantime, help us to be faithful to the things you've called us to do, trusting you that you will deliver us even if you must raise us from the dead. You truly are so, so good to us in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.